1: Welcome to another new episode of New Books in Islamic Studies, which is part of the New Books Network. Thank you so much for joining me today, and I hope you are safe and well wherever you are. Today, we are joined by Dr. Richard C. Jankowski, who is an associate professor at Tufts University, and we're discussing his new book, Ambient Sufism, Ritual Niches, and the Social Work of Musical Form, which was just recently published, so in 2021, in with the University of Chicago Press, so fresh off the press. The book is an ethnographic study of the sonic and ritual landscapes of complex religious communities in Tunisia. Using theoretical approaches of ethnomusicology that attends to questions and patterns of form, texture and intensification of the soundscapes, such as during a trance or a dhikr, along with the consideration of the uses of various instruments, The study illuminates the role of women and racial and religious minorities in shaping the ritual musical landscape of the region. The book includes case studies of men and women's Sufi orders, Jewish and Black Tunisian healing practices, and the popular music across diverse social economic classes. Jankowski concludes with a critical discussion of the popularization of Sufi ritual music and mass-mediated stage spectacles. Conceptually then, ambient Sufism, or the phrase ambient Sufism, is employed to illuminate diverse adjacent ritual practices that serve as musical, social, devotional, therapeutic niche, which exist within a broader fluid ecology of practices that orbit the figures of saints, especially Sufi saints. This book will be of interest to those who think and write on ethnomusicology, anthropology, Islamic and religious studies, and North African studies. While its accompanying website um, with audio and great video resources will be great um, source to use in your courses, um, especially on ritual or Sufism and much more. In our conversation today, we spoke about the process of completing ethnography in Tunisia, some of the historical contexts of Islam and Sufism in Tunisia, the convergence of Jewish and Muslim adherents at Sufi shrines. The globalization of Sufi music and the ways in which to use this text in a classroom, along with its com- accompanying website. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Professor Richard C. Jankowski about his new book, Ambient Sufism, Ritual Niches, and the Social Work of Musical Form. Hi, Richard. Thank you so much for joining us to talk about your new book, Ambient Sufism, Ritual Niches, and the Social Work of Musical Form. How are you doing today?
0: I'm doing great. Thanks for having me.
1: Of course. I'm very excited to talk to you about this fantastic uh, um, work. Um, as you may know, we have a tradition on the podcast to ask our guests to say a little bit about themselves and what led them to write this book and their intellectual journey. So I wonder if you could share that with us.
0: Yes, of of course. Um, there were a few sort of pivotal Moments, I guess I could draw attention to, because otherwise it would be a real lengthy, linear narrative of my intellectual development. Um, I I guess as an undergraduate, I was an anthropology and music double major. um, And then I encountered the field of ethnomusicology, which effectively combines those two areas. Um, And my first mentor in ethnomusicology was the West African music specialist, David Locke, who instilled in his students um, the value of, of patience in holding at bay our sort of Eurocentric and Americo-centric questions and assumptions about musics of other cultures, um, and instead championed the importance of learning about those cultures and their musics on their own terms through participation and humility, really. Um, so that was my introduction to to ethnomusicology. After graduating, um, I moved to Tunisia for a little under two years. Uh, I studied Arabic intensively there and uh, as a musician, uh, sought out all that was musical. But at that point, music was still kind of secondary in terms of my career plans, as I had been planning to go into Middle East studies and, and perhaps a career in the diplomatic corps. Um, but while I was in Tunis, I spent some time with the, the diplomatic community there, and I was really surprised by how little they actually interacted with citizens of their their host country. And so I started to think I could work toward my goal um, which was always wrapped up in the idea of fostering intercultural understanding by doubling down on the study of music. I mean, that was where I was connecting uh, the most with uh, the people I, I encountered and, and came to uh, befriend and, and respect and admire uh, there. And, you know, in, in music, we often have the, the privilege of finding a kind of immediate um, and 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 passionate common ground with others um, who we encounter in our our journeys, so that that shift of career ambition, if you will, um, was a, a pivotal moment, and it was reinforced by the the large amount of time I had been spending at the Center for Maghreb Studies in Tunis, which was run by the the late great. Jean Murad, uh, who happened to be the mother of my undergraduate college roommate. So uh, mm-hmm. the Murad family were really inf- influential. And she introduced me at the center um, to scholars at, at all levels of their careers, coming to Tunis to do research on on such a diversity of topics from so many disciplinary uh, perspectives. But there was a, a, a void in the cultural and um musical uh approaches to scholarship that i was you know that i recognized and that i was energized to fill so i entered a uh, the phd program in ethnomusicology at the university of chicago where i studied under martin stokes and philip bowman whose work inspired in Whose work inspired me, in many ways, but especially, I would say, in how music, rather than you know the stereotypical idea that many people have of music being a kind of you know uh, idealistic universal language that transcends difference and brings people together, actually is often a flashpoint for cultural and and political debate, and is a, a site for for managing issues of social difference, so I did another year of fieldwork in Tunis, and really became fascinated by musics that I encountered that were stigmatized socially. You know, musics that people didn't want to talk about, but they um, they had this sort of respect for, or even fear of, um, and and you know, these were absent from local scholarship, yet just had. You know clearly a profound and deep-rooted social power and and i was effectively taken in by a family of musicians who specialized in stambelli which is a music-driven spirit possession ritual associated with tunisians of sub-saharan descent and that would become my doctoral dissertation and the, the basis for my first book Excuse me. And that book is an ethnography and a history of the the Stambeli ritual musical community. And it looks not only at how music interfaces with and creates the conditions for healing, but also how it, it creates a kind of alternative historiography of the the slave trade across the Sahara, because those memories are, are embedded in, in the music and ritual, yet they've been suppressed in sort of official discourse, um, you know, and in, in school curricula. So that sort of provided the foundation or the jumping off point for this book, because Stambelli is but one niche in a, a broader ecology Uh, That includes what I refer to as adjacent ritual practices. So this new book, Ambient Sufism, kind of steps back and takes a wider lens look at that ritual ecology, which is populated by distinct ritual communities um, associated with uh, women Sufis, black Tunisians, Jewish Tunisians, so-called Um, ecstatic and sober Sufis and even hard drinking laborers. Um, So that's the, (laughs) I guess, the background to to this project.
1: Yeah, I think the book is just such a great example of how like this focus on ritual practices and particularly music can really act as a prism for all of these other identities. And um, I found it just really rich and And I'm excited to to talk about it with you a little bit more. Um as I was reading the book, I was really curious about you know what your methodological process was like. And I guess, as an ethnographer, I would imagine um myself, you know it would, would consist of field work and being at sites. But I wonder what's a little bit different about being an ethnomusicologist, So what are some things that you would be looking for? If you're in, um, you know, uh, participating in ritual spaces or Sufi shrines, as you do throughout the book.
0: Oh, that's a a wonderful question. Thank you. Um, yeah, I mean, being an ethnomusicologist means, you know, not only developing the the linguistic and social and and cultural uh, competencies, you know, required of you know, long-term, deep uh, fieldwork, um, but also musical competencies. And in this case, that music is a very sort of specialized area. It's not the kind of thing you can go to a conservatory to to mm. study. Um, it's so embedded in, in ritual practice that it also means entering into these uh, ritual uh, worlds. And I was very fortunate um, to have made uh, contacts uh earlier in the earlier project in the stambelli community and learn how to perform the music um and take part in ritual in in many uh, different ways and that that really earned me um a, a good reputation in in the region and it opened up doors to these other communities, because as I show in the book, they are really, even though each one is so incredibly distinct, when you hear, you know, certain sounds like the, the Goombri lute, you know, immediately that's Stambeli. If you hear the, the Mizwit bagpipes in the context of ritual, you know, that immediately that is is associated with the Jewish uh, ritual healing tradition. Um, So even though they're, they're very, very distinct They overlap in so many ways and they have so many shared spiritual reference as well that, you know, I could early on um, or let's say the the, my experience with Stambelli ensured that I could speak sort of knowledgeably already about um, ritual and musics and the the spiritual figures that are um, invoked. and in these ritual contexts, you know, one point I, uh, I think is really important to make is that um, focusing on music can be super productive um, because music is not something that accompanies ritual. In these contexts, music really is the ritual. It is the mechanism through which saints and spirits are summoned and individuals who are participating, um, follow their, uh, spiritual journeys, you know, music structures, the entirety of, um, of the ceremony. And, and therefore it's actually musicians who have this kind of maximal knowledge of those spiritual figures, um, And also the community, the members of the community who come, they know, you know, who needs to hear which song in order to be healed and at which point in the ritual that song should uh, should come. And so, um, you know, I'm really hoping to to center music a bit in um, in in the study of uh, devotional and and healing rituals in, in the region. Um.
1: I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about the title or the phrase Ambient Sufism. You discuss it in your chapter one as kind of an important, Mm -hmm. um, I guess, intervention that you're making in the book. So what does Ambient Sufism mean and what are you trying to get across um, in using that
0: kind of focus? Yeah, thanks. Um, So I guess because Sufi saints are named and invoked in musics beyond what we might call Formal Sufism, right? Um, or at least you know the stereotypical, uh, you know, white woolen cloaked uh, Sufis. Although they are a present and a very important part of this uh, ecology, um, they don't have a monopoly on uh, the the figures of and the the spiritual interventions of. Sufi saints. So you find, um, you know, many different ritual healing practices that have, uh, that invoke Sufi saints, but you also have working class drinking parties that actually have, uh, entire repertoires devoted to, uh, praising Sufi saints. Um, you have concerts, uh, and all kinds of other projects. And so, um, my approach is to have a very broad definition, of Sufism, one that accounts for or or captures a a very wide variety of of musical practices that call on Sufi saints. And because this wide variety of practices involves so many musical styles and so many contexts, uh, the songs for Sufi saints circulate really widely. So that's part of the ambient um, uh, part, you know, you hear these songs on on TV during Ramadan at just about every wedding uh, that you'll ever go to has some of these songs. They're performed on some of the most prestigious theater and concert stages, as well as in, you know, those ritual ceremonies held at shrines, but also in domestic spaces. Um, Every town has neighborhoods named after saints, uh, and many town names themselves are simply uh, names of of saints, and you know these in turn evoke living practices associated with those uh, spiritual figures. So, so that's really the ambient part. Uh, the saints are part of the the atmosphere. Um, you know, they're evoked through sounds but they also prompt ideas and memories that may come and go but are always always within reach and and readily available so um so while there while many aspects of these practices are are esoteric that is you know the the knowledge involved in them is only known to initiates those things are performed very, very publicly, and so, um, so that's really what I was getting at with the the term, ambient. This sense of um, of you know the saints being always within reach, readily readily available, and you know just part of the general atmosphere.
1: And I and I think the Tunisian context is also important to set up here, right? Because as you say in the beginning and and, and some of the chapters, I think the chapter. are To on women, there's a growing presence of kind of anti-Sufism or Salafi thought that's kind of resisting this broader ecology of saints and shrine practices. Mm -hmm. So um, can you tell us a little bit about um, the Tunisian context for those who may not know about kind of the religious landscape that you're contending with and the place of Sufism within that landscape?
0: Yes, of course. Um, So... know there are many tunisians that i've uh that i know and that i've encountered throughout the the many years i've uh i've spent um researching and uh, the the culture of the region and and living there who describe their form of islam as sufi you know the the and and that is not to say that everyone partakes in sufi rituals it's just that these figures of the saints provide certain models of um, of devotion, and it's a kind of decentralized, if you will, um, a, approach, and and one that champions
1: uh,
0: music and dance and and processions and festivals and uh, and and such. Uh, and in fact, you know, I was living in Tunisia when. Uh, satellite dishes first uh, started to become ubiquitous in in the country, and when television programs from the Middle East and particularly Saudi uh, Arabia started to um, be available in people's homes, th- a, a real debate emerged um, over, you know, the kind of you know Wahhabi inspired. Um, messages that, that people were now having available to them and uh, listening to on you know a, a daily basis, and so um, so there was a bit of, of sort of self uh, assessment already going on uh, in in Tunisia in terms of um, you know debates over what kind of Muslims. Uh, are we? And of course, there's always a, a great deal of variety anyway, but two sort of camps started to, to emerge. And with the Arab Spring um, and the revolution of, of 2011, um, that really came to a, to a head. Um, you know, all was going well in my fieldwork until, until that time. And, and the, the revolution... Um, ended Ben Ali's rule, um, introduced many democratic reforms, had very, um, you know, I- important and, and profound um, uh, outcomes, but it also unleashed a variety of Islamist movements and some of them violent. So, mm-hmm. the the Sufi shrines that are neighborhood, you know, landmarks and emblems of of, of community. Um, where my field consultants uh, and and friends uh, performed their ceremonies were attacked. They were vandalized. Uh, Sometimes they were even occupied by Islamists. And so for the first couple of years after the revolution, the vast majority of the ritualists and musicians I was working with had to stop performing their, their ceremonies. And so... Saint shrines and, and Sufi practices became even further enmeshed in these debates over, you know, the future of the country and the kind of Islam that would uh, prevail. So at the time, the, the, the ritual communities and practices that I was studying were felt to be under serious threat. And uh, my work certainly began for me to take on more urgency um as it was it was unclear whether i was witnessing their their final chapter
1: Mm. that's very interesting especially as someone who does ethnography that you it's kind of scary to think that in a moment that your project becomes a memorialization or an archival project because you just never know um and i think that's like um interesting tension to deal with as a, as a researcher in the field and something that I've had to contend with as well. So it's wow. fascinating to hear you say that. Um, I wonder if we could talk now about some of the features of the book. Um, and one of the things you do um, is you apply, um, you know, theory around music and um, ideas of uh, how to approach these um landscapes and rituals that you're encountering. And you use um, I, um, words such as, or theory, such as timber, texture, intensification. And I so appreciated this because I... You know, I participate in Sufi rituals and study them, and I would have never known these to be approaches to study. I kind of think about ritual, Sufi rituals in very different ways. Um, Mm -hmm. So when you're um, encountering maybe like the trance practices or the Hadras that you talk about in chapter two with Sufi communities, um, how do you look for these features in the ritual, such as the intensification process that you describe or the texture or the form of of the, the, the sounds that you're hearing? I don't know if that question makes sense.
0: No it it totally does um, <laughs> um, and and you're right that this is it's very unconventional what I'm uh, what I'm doing because conventional kind of musical or even sonic analysis tends to focus on you know melody and rhythm and you know things things like that and um. I really am so interested in looking at the ritual process from the perspective of the participant. So what are people experiencing? And there's kind of this long, or that process through any ritual is a long and holistic one. Um, but moreover, it's a, a, a musical one in, in these contexts and, and music creates that kind of architecture of time that, um, you know, or, or guides the participant along that trajectory um, so they can take their their journey, which is, you know, or the rehla, which is the, the common metaphor used in, in these um, contexts. And once I started doing that and, you know, stopped thinking about music in terms of, you know, pieces to be analyzed and just start thinking holistically about that journey um certain you know unexpected aspects of the the musical experience started to emerge and i think having that comparative approach it's not really comparative but this multi-sided approach let's say enabled me to um you know to to see what was unique to certain practices and what they, they had in common. And so, um, you know, it became very clear that timbre, for example, does an incredible amount of indexical work. So that is, it, it, it raises, you know, the sounds are, uh, raise immediate associations with particular ritual communities. So, when the Jewish, uh, Rebbe Bia tradition, use which uses the mizwid bagpipes and the the hand drums called Bendir, they need to stick to that to create conditions for trance. That is um, sort of the baseline. Uh, but when they call on Stambeli saints or spirits. They actually add a Stambeli musical instrument called the shkashik; these uh, handheld iron castanets, because it's so important in this ritual ecology, the way that you know musical and ritual logics uh, work, to have that sound um, that is associated with and then evokes that in you know that entire um, musical and, and ritual. Uh, community and so all of these sound very different, but what they have in common is when they have a timbre, you know that which is the quality of a sound, you know that differentiates an instrument from another instrument. So when you hear, say, a a B flat note, it's the same pitch, but if you played it on a piano or a tuba you know, you know, which one is which, right. It's, so that's based on the, the, so we call that, that timbre. So the, the distinctive quality of, of sound. Um, but there are some other things that sort of evade our, uh, initial, um, sort of analytical apparatus, if you will, because they seem so self-evident and not even worth, uh, you know, uh, looking at explicitly so constancy is another one so constancy of timbre unless you're doing something like the rebabia and you know trying to um have a sort of stambelli section your timbre and texture remain constant um and that constancy i think is very important for creating the conditions for trance um but it also does something else. Uh, and I'm really interested in issues of of repetition and and constancy. And in these musics, that constancy rhythmically, we would call cyclicity. So rather than calling it repetition, which suggests sort of unchanging sayings that are repeated over time, cyclicity is sort of a, an open-ended um, set of repetitions, but it... it the concept also allows for certain variations to be made. Cause this, this isn't music where, um, you know, although it might be described as as repetitive and certain my, certainly my students when they first hear it say, wow, that's really repetitive. And I'm like, sure. yeah, but that's that's good. That's good if you're a trancer, right? Um, and also where is it going? You know, this piece I'm playing for you is six minutes long. I'm not just gonna play you a 10 second clip. I'm going to play the whole thing because it's going to bring you from point A to point B. And by the time you get to point B, you realize that the music has really intensified and that's, that's your journey. If you're the trancer, Um, you know, it gets faster. There's more sonic density as you, um, as you get faster, that is more sort of musical or sonic um, things happening per you know, per beat, if you will, or per per second. Um, so, it, you know, a, it emerged from trying to from putting myself in the in the participants' um, uh, perspective, uh, or in the participants' uh, shoes. Does that does that clarify? I, I'm I'm hoping I'm not yes. making things more confusing.
1: No, no, absolutely. And I think it also because throughout your discussion, you also talk about in terms of if the participants are there from the from right at the start of the ritual or if they should come halfway. And if, does that, you know, at all interfere with the full access? And I think you kind of get get to this, particularly on the chapter around um, women in, th- in chapter three, where there is uh, the, you know, the need for healing or people are attending because it's it's Tie, the participation is tied to healing, right? Um, or mm-hmm. there's aspects of a hospitality involved. Um, mm-hmm. And so I think hearing about the, the woman's, um, um, you know, the Tajani group or other Sufi groups that you are studying in this ch- uh, section and how it's tying into larger Sufi rituals of hospitality, but particularly healing also then um, kind of is getting at the point that you're making in terms of what is it that the participants are taking away from the ritual?
0: Right, exactly. Um and you know, so if you do take that example, say the the women Sufi group uh, called the Menubia, um revolving around the the figure of the 13th century um, female saint Seda Menubia, uh, in in this this practice, like the Rabebia of the, the Jewish community and Stambeli of the uh, Black Tunisian community, I. Uh, the whole ritual is is structured around uh, a large scale musical form called the silsila, and the silsila literally means a chain, um, and it refers to a chain of songs played in a roughly standard order. And each song is associated with and is in praise of a a specific Sufi saint or a, a possessing spirit, and. I, I call this a cumulative musical form because as the musicians proceed through the silsula, through the chain, each song provides additional information, if you will, about that ritual community and its values and and priorities. So um, so they always begin, as most silsilas do, with a song for the prophet, but it's not just any song for the prophet, they begin with a song about the birth of the prophet, with lyrics that emphasize the role of of motherhood, right? You're right the importance of of motherhood. So it sort of signals, you know, that this is a um, you know a women's Sufi group, and the target audience and the participants are are um, are, are women, and then they move on uh, in the second song to a song for Seyda Manubia, uh, the the group's uh, namesake. And this song evokes the powers of this saint and, of course, situates her ritually in close proximity to the prophet. Um, And it also evokes her peculiar history of challenging gender norms. I mean, there's some really... Um, powerful I- images that are uh, described in the in, in the lyrics, and then the next song they go um, and and praise and invoke uh, a male saint, Sidi Bal who was Sada Manubia's teacher, uh, Sufi teacher, uh, despite the criticism she received for hanging out with you know male Sufis all night. Um, and Sidi Hassan is, is perhaps the, the most well-known saint in the area of Tunis. His, his shrine is a, a uh, sort of towers over the city on top of a, a, a hilltop, um, and and the Shadhiliya Sufi order has him as their sort of founding um, namesake because Sidi Hassan is Shadhili, and they're considered the most conservative uh, Sufi order in uh, in in the region. They don't use any musical instruments. They don't partake in any outward, let's say, outwardly visible um, forms of of trance. Yet the figure of Sidi Bel Hassan is connected to Saida Manubi, and that connection is made um, musically and and ritually here. So, so that's just the first three. Songs in this uh, silsila, but with each one, you kind of learn more. Um, and for participants who are, you know, regular participants, uh, they sort of have reinforced all of these things that are very specific to this particular ritual um, community. And I could say, you yeah. know, yeah. oh, go ahead. Go ahead. I was just going to say, and then, you know, the same could be said for the Silsila of Stambeli, whose order Mm -hmm. of songs emphasizes African Islamic connections. You know, they also begin with the prophet, but the next uh, song is for um, Sidi Bilal. Uh, Bilal was one of the prophet's companions, who was the first caller to prayer in the history of Islam. He's a, you know, a well-known historical uh, figure. And then they move on to uh, local Sufi saints that are of sub-Saharan origin and you know came to Tunisia as slaves and then had their um, saintness, I guess their uh, walea, their closeness to God um, recognized by uh, black and Arab Tunisians alike and they entered into this sort of spiritual world where they are called upon um, to to heal, and you know, the further you go down that silsila, the more connections um, are uh, are made. So, um, yeah, so that's really what I'm what I mean by uh, or a couple of examples uh, that illustrate this concept of the social work of of musical form. Mm-hmm.
1: I just think even from each of the chapter, from your discussion of um, women in chapter three to the sambali ritual in chapter four and in chapter five, where you look at the Muslim Jewish convergence um, with the rabab. Um, I just even the discussion of the silsula there is really fascinating because once you get to chapter five and you're kind of introducing us to the Jewish musicians who are participating in some of these rituals, the idea that the silsalah for the Jewish musicians does not include um, uh, the mention of the Prophet Muhammad, but, um, you know, starts in a different place. I just think that itself is fascinating to see how lineages are being created in particular mm-hmm. ritual contexts um, to appeal to maybe the actors and or the participants um, in that moment.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So there's an example of, you know, the social work of musical form through the absence mm-hmm. of um of a spiritual figure, which, you know, you wouldn't pick up on unless you already knew how, uh, how the silsula worked in these ritually adjacent, uh, practices. Um, so then what's also very interesting is, okay, what, what replaced the, the, the nuba or the song for, for the prophet. And it ends up being, you know, a a love song from the art music tradition called Malouf, um, that, uh, and and the song has origins in in Libya. And so it opens up these historical connections because there's um, actually very little, there's no scholarship whatsoever on Rebbe Bia, this, um, you know, this, uh, you know, now defunct of, of course, the community no longer exists in, in Tunisia, um, but you know this this trance healing tradition of Jews on on the mainland. You know there on the island of Jerba there is a, a Jewish community that you know has been studied by anthropologists and and um, and many ethnomusicologists in in fact. But um, but this trance healing tradition of the the mainland um, had not been studied, and so looking at the music opens up these questions. Well, why this Libyan, you know, art music song? And so it, it, it compels you to start doing research in a previously unexpected realm of the history of Jewish migrations from, you know, neighboring uh, countries. Um, So yeah, it really is this, um, this prism, uh, to use a term you used earlier, uh, Mm -hmm. that, you know, sheds light on and um, opens up paths into uh, so many different realms of social and, and historical action.
1: Yeah, it's just so fascinating. I wonder if we could shift a little bit to talk about um, Chapter 6, which is kind of the last chapter before the conclusion and I think this is one of the chapters that I'm most interested in because I think a lot about the popularization of Sufi music and the contemporary context um and I was really really fascinated here about your discussion of um this I guess in in Tunisia and in other places as well not only in Tunisia but I think you also mentioned Morocco where now there's these you know huge um I guess, concert-like or um, um, showcases and performances of um, sacred uh, Sufi music and you, and you use the phrase um, ritual and spectacle and so there's now this you know shift between these kind of you know the, the ritual context in which some of these musical traditions that you're speaking about are being presented and now kind of the performative um, spectacle aspect on you know the stage where these um, rituals are being displayed and I think you ask some really really fascinating questions here and you really push you know the reader to think not very you know in a very textured way actually to think about how is Sufism on display and how is it being displayed? And you also talk about this idea of the desacralization of sound and the resacralization of public space, which I thought was so fascinating. So what, what do you think we need to think about when we think of the popularization of Sufi ritual music, not only in the Tunisian context, because I think this could really be applicable to a lot of other um, contexts as well.
0: Yeah, thanks so much. What a... Um... Yeah, what a, a wonderful reading of uh, of that chapter. I, I really appreciate the the care you took. Um, you know, I, what I would say is, you know, we need to be careful of um, of binaries such as you know authentic or inauthentic um, when it comes to staging uh, any sacred sounds. Um, these are contexts in their own right and people get a lot of different things out of them and they are really just filled with ambiguity um but what i tried to show in this chapter is that in in the case of the spectacles in in tunisia um and i do hope as you say that there are ideas here that are transferable certainly i'm not an expert in you know other parts of the world but i have seen what appeared to be sort of family resemblances um, Mm. that these ambiguities are actually very specific sets of, um, of uh, ambiguities. And so, you know, you'll sometimes hear music that on the stage that sounds just like what you would hear in, in ritual, but it's a closing piece that's actually played at the beginning, or it's associated with sort of modern dance that, you know, includes, you know, martial arts, like uh, moves, you know, choreography, um, or it will involve, you know, one instrument that's, you know, not traditionally played in in ritual. And so, um, and then there will be others where you take a song, but it's almost unrecognizable. It's originally from ritual, but it's played by a you know, uh, a rock or a, a jazz band um, in a new uh, arrangement. And these are all part of the same spectacle. Um, so, you know, one of the tools I used, sort of an intellectual tool to, um, to grasp this, was uh, this concept of the uh, contextual Gap, And it it draws on Briggs and Bauman's uh, idea of the the textual, intertextual um, gap from linguistic uh, anthropology. And, uh, you know, there are are aspects of these, um, of these spectacles where they stage Sufi music, in which there are certain choices that are made that minimize that gap, that sort of try to recreate, in a sense, um, something that happens in in ritual, and then there are others that really maximize that gap and draw attention to the fact that, hey, we're on a concert stage in a theater, so we're going to use all these, you know, all this innovative lighting and choreography and and other things that um, are actually connected to the aesthetic, um, you know, logics and and priorities of of uh, theater rather than. Uh, than ritual and so i think that's kind of a flexible enough framework that it could be applied uh, in 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 different contexts um, but um, i really appreciate that that you saw that uh, the the value there
1: oh absolutely i mean i think a lot about um whirling dervishes in the north american context so i think our yes. geographical context is quite different um but i'm working on a project on kind of the popularization of it and i think the a lot of the questions that i get which is exactly i think what you were engaging with here is this like um lost of authenticity right kind of this binary of, is this authentic or not authentic um and, it, and it's hard because when i interview the actual samazans or the whirlers on stage they're having what seems At least you're describing to me a very real experience that's comparable um, to what they might experience in an actual more private ritual context. Um, But I think, you know, maybe the exchange of money, as you say, maybe the lights, the stage, you know, the idea that it becomes a spectacle for some people feels like it's... um, you know dilution or something is being taken away that makes it less authentic so as i was reading this and the questions and the way that you kind of carefully asked the reader to not enter that binary but actually consider the intertextual i thought was really productive at least for me so i appreciated the chapter
0: oh fantastic thank you i look forward to talking you know more with you about that project i think that that's fascinating (laughs)
1: oh uh, thanks um i I wonder if we could take a step back I mean there's so much detail in this book and this is only meant to be an introduction but is there you know, a, a key point or a couple of key points that you want the reader to take away as a whole in, in this book as they're as they're thinking about it
0: um well that's that's a a great idea uh we just got down into the weeds and maybe now we'll um, look up a little bit yeah yeah we'll Um, let me, yeah,
1: I think think, you mentioned it in terms of authority and the role of ritual spaces, and you invoke uh, Shahab Ahmed as well, in terms of kind of thinking about what, what could be constituted as Islamic, right? Um, I think that was one idea that I thought of as I was reading the conclusion.
0: Oh yes, absolutely. Um, this idea, you know, that, the The late great Shahab Ahmed um, left us with the the concept of explorative authority in uh, in Islam. Just rings so so true when working in ritual contexts um, in Tunisia and across North Africa. You know, other um, places I've I've been as well. And you know, unfortunately, it's it feels like an uphill battle against um, you know the the urge or the expectation that you know we look at um you know the kind of prescriptive authority the authority you know that resides in the interpretation of of texts um so yeah that's absolutely a, a a really important um kind of takeaway from from the book i would um if if we step back even further i might say that um you know, particularly because you know maybe your audience is not, um, you know, will be made up of uh, people who are not um, often reading, you know, scholarly books in music or ethnomusicology um, to sort of find um, to sort of explore Islamic studies. I would I would say that the the musical and the social in this book are two sides of the same coin. And so in order to understand the social, um, you know, I argue that we need to understand certain musical aspects and in order to really get at the music and why it's structured the way it is, we need to understand the, the social work that it, um, uh, accomplishes. So, um, so, I, you know, one of the main takeaways is that these two things are inseparable in the context of uh, devotional and, and healing ritual musics. And um, I guess to, going a step further, those ritual musics are, you know, shaped by, performed by, um, you know, women and minorities and so-called ecstatic Sufis. And they all really play an important role in contributing to the definition of and the circulation of, um, you know, Sufi music or musics associated with Sufism um, in in Tunisia. And again, by extension, you know, much of, of North Africa, since similar exercises in neighboring countries, you know, might yield um, similar similar pictures
1: Mm -hmm. um I, i should also tell our listeners that the the book comes with a compendium website which has fantastic fantastic audio files and video clips and it's organized according to each chapter um as you know i'm really grateful for you that you've done this and do you have any suggestions perhaps for some of our listeners who who maybe teach courses that they could incorporate um, both sections of the book or the entirety of the book with um, parts or uh, video fi- audio files or video files from the website that you put together for us?
0: Oh yeah, for sure, and thank you for um, for bringing that up. And you know, I uh, want to give a shout out to the the wonderful people at Tufts Digital Library who. Um, uh, who were able to to build this website and and populate it with uh, so many field recordings that illustrate specific musical points I I make in in the book. Um, so you know the website is organized according to chapter. It provides audio and video examples um, for for each of them. Um, I. I do want to say that most of these are field recordings that I made in the context of, uh, of, you know, actual ceremonies. And I used a very simple stereo microphone setup and placed the microphone close to where the, the dancer would be, or the transfer or, um, you know, other participants in order to best approximate or capture the, ritual experience of, of participants. So I, I think it's an important point to make because I purposefully avoided trying to clean up the sound or add microphones closer to the mouths of, of singers. And so for, for users of the website who are accustomed, you know, to slickly recorded productions, it might take a little recalibration of expectations, um, which which I think is good because to return, you know, full circle to the point of, you know, the importance of approaching other musics and cultures on their own terms, you know, um, you know, it's good to start with some uh, humility and put our, you know, not sort of try to make a studio recording according t- to, you know, our expected Spotify, you know, aesthetics. Um, so... Um, so, yeah, I wanted to capture that, that experience. Um, but then some of the others are, you know, are pulled from YouTube or are pulled from, um, you know, concert uh, performances and, and are, are not, um, are not mine. But, you know, in terms of using the website to teach um, this book, because it's made up of a series of fairly self-contained case studies, I think can be used in a wide variety of, um, of, of classes. Um, you know, if you want, if you're interested in, in women Sufis, there's a a chapter that, you know, addresses that. And only that, if you're interested in, you know, Ritual musics and, and minorities. There are a couple of chapters that deal um, ex- explicitly with uh, with with that, and I do think it is important to, in order to get a sense of what it's like to be there, to feel comfortable letting the audio or video examples play. Sometimes in our classrooms, you know, once a minute has gone by, the, the you can almost. Feel the awkwardness in the room as students are like unsure of how they should be reacting now, and so I do my best to prepare them um, yeah. for that. But I do think it's it's important because a lot of the things that I draw attention to are kind of long, long term or larger scale, and so getting from point A to point B can sometimes take a little bit of time, but is um, you know usually worth the wait.
1: I really appreciated that note that you mentioned that, you know, just don't play it for a minute, but play the whole bit and let the students sit with it. Because I think, yes, I complete what you just said completely resonates with me that you feel like maybe they're not receiving it and you just want to stop and move on. But um, I think Mm -hmm. I'll have to keep that in mind when I'm trying to incorporate some of this as well um the the website was fantastic and partly because i'm not so musically inclined so it was great for me as i was going through the different chapters just to go to the website and play and so i had a point of reference mentally so i really really appreciate the website um and Mm -hmm. i think it's fantastic um I'm, i'm mindful of our time and i've taken up so much of your time already um as a traditional last question i wonder um what are some things that you may be working on now i realized um we're in a pandemic and things are very different, but perhaps there was a project that you're working on that's on pause or maybe an idea that's floating around. I'm sure some of our listeners would love to know.
0: Oh, sure. Um, well, I have a couple uh, that I'm, I'm working on. I mean, right now I'm, I'm actually finishing up another book manuscript that takes an even broader look um, across the Maghreb, so across you know, North Africa. Um, looking at music, politics, and power in the region. So I have um, chapters on, on hip-hop and the Arab Spring, uh, music and, and the, the Amazig or, or Berber rights movements in, in Algeria and, and Morocco, um, uh, other case studies of music and uh, okay. migration and, and minorities, um, migration including rural to urban internal uh, migration that led to so many um, uh, popular musics in in the region that were um, controversial and, and stigmatized. You know, Algerian rye is perhaps the best known example because it made its way into the world music market, um, but uh, Tunisia and, and Morocco um, and, uh, to a certain extent, Libya also have uh, similar similar um, I- experiences. um so I'm excited about uh, uh about that one and you know the pandemic actually led me to start doing some other things and returning to um, you know aspects of music that are formative in 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 my personal biography and so I'm a jazz musician that's how i I started and I've always been fascinated by the uh, the not just the musical but the social value attributed to certain um, drum set symbols that were made in Turkey <laughs> in the 1950s and 60s and then those companies moved to to the US. But then um, as part of this demand, uh, companies in Turkey that were um, connected in some way to those original uh, production, Lines in 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 Turkey in the nineteen fifties and sixties started sprouting up there. So I've got this this kind of um, I don't know critical organology uh, project where organology is the study of uh, of of musical instruments, but really looking at the the social and, and historical lives of of musical instruments.
1: That is so cool. (laughs) That's amazing. I really look forward to your work. And I've I've learned so much. Um, um, So I'm so thankful to you for spending the time with us and sharing insights about this new fantastic book. Thank you so much again.
0: Well, thank you for having me. And that
1: was my conversation with Dr. Richard C. Jankowski about his new book, Ambient Sufism, Ritual Niches and the Social Work of Musical Form, published with the University of Chicago Press in 2021. I hope you enjoyed our conversation and I look forward to having you join me again next time on the new books in Islamic studies. Until then, take care and stay well.